The second scripture lesson continues Luke's account of Jesus' passion. I will read Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 49. Listen now for the word of the Lord. As they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, and they laid a cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A great number of the people followed him, and among them were women who were beating their breasts and wailing for him. But Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are surely coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do this when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others also, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and the one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. And the people stood by watching. But the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Messiah. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn into two. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, Certainly this man was innocent. And when all the crowds who had gathered there for this spectacle saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. But all his acquaintances, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When Kairos, the Greek god of opportunity, is personified in art, 
He appears as a young athletic man who has wings on his back and on his feet that propel him forward. He often balances on a ball or a wheel so that he can change course unpredictably and swiftly. His entrances and exits are as sharp as the razor that he carries. Beyond these characteristics, his most distinguishing feature is his hair. While most of his head is shaved, the the one long lock of hair hangs in the front. If you are quick enough, you can seize Kairos, the god of opportunity, by grabbing onto this lock of hair, but the slightest moment of hesitation will leave you seeing only the bald back of his head. While we may not have been familiar with this image, we are certainly familiar with the idea it has inspired, as expressed in phrases like, seize the opportunity, or don't let this opportunity pass you by. Whether or not to seize an opportunity and what to do with an opportunity, however, are questions that present plenty of pitfalls, since it is hard nearly impossible to proceed with prudence when you are pressed to act quickly. So it isn't really surprising that in the wake of opportunity is often regret and sorrow. While American culture places a lot of value on opportunity and the need to seize it and to make the most of it, it has often neglected the fact that the God of opportunity does not work alone. According to Greek art and literature, a shadowy figure has followed Kairos for millennia. Her name is Metanoia, the goddess of regret and repentance. Metanoia sows and inspires regret and repentance for what has and hasn't been done. Palm and Passion Sunday is the day when the church regrets and repents for the actions and inactions that contributed to the horrific events of Jesus's unjust suffering and death. If only Judas hadn't betrayed Jesus. If only the disciples hadn't fallen asleep in the garden. If only they hadn't deserted Jesus. If only Simon Peter hadn't denied Jesus. If only a few of the Sanhedrin had spoken up for the truth. If only Pontius Pilate hadn't turned to the mob for a verdict. If only he hadn't put his own power and popularity first. If only the crowd hadn't been so manipulable and so ignorant. If only their ignorance hadn't played into the hands of such violent conspirators. If only the disciples had been more powerful, more influential. If only Jesus had allowed them to take up arms. If only Jesus had defended himself. If only Jesus had saved himself. Right or wrong, The regrets are too numerous to count. They pile up and weigh heavily on our hearts and minds. It doesn't feel good to rehearse the story of what happened to Jesus, and yet we do it anyway, every year. 
Why then do we relive our regret? We aren't ruminating. We aren't blaming. We aren't scapegoating. We aren't victimizing ourselves or anyone else. So what are we doing? In his book, The Power of Regret, How Looking Forward, Backward, Moves Us Forward, Daniel Pink draws on research in psychology, neuroscience, economics, and biology to argue that by understanding what people regret the most, we can understand what they value the most. This is a big statement, and while I don't know if it is true in every case, it seems like it could be true on Palm and Passion Sunday. It seems true that for Christians, the suffering imposed upon our Lord Jesus Christ is the epitome of what we regret, and that when we regret what happened to Jesus, we are put in touch with what we value the most. What does the story of Jesus' passion reveal to us about what we value the most? This is a question that the gospel writers invite us to reflect upon as we process all the regret for the actions and inactions contributing to Jesus' passion. The gospel writers themselves have done this work, and while they all come out sharing some core values in common, they also place certain distinctive emphases on particular values. For example, the gospel writer Mark especially values the humanity of Jesus, as is, as is emphasized in his portrayal of Jesus' agony when on the cross Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Amen. The gospel account of Luke which we heard this morning, especially values the disciplined faithfulness of Jesus. Just as at the beginning of his ministry, after fasting 40 days and nights in the wilderness, Jesus remained faithful to God, even though Satan tried to tempt him to save himself and the world with bread, power, and security. Here, at the end of his life, when assailed by temptation to save himself, Jesus continues a disciplined faithfulness. For Luke, disciplined faithfulness to God seems to be the value he is most concerned to emphasize. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it was for such faithfulness in the time of trial that Jesus prayed both for himself and his disciples. Simon, Simon, listen, he said. Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your own faith may not fail. Speaking to his disciples just before his arrest, Jesus said to them, pray that you may not come into the time of trial. And then after he was taken into custody, when men blindfolded Jesus and began to insult and beat him, they mockingly tempted him to use his prophetic powers, saying, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? When Jesus was brought next before the Sanhedrin council, then next before Pilate, and then next before Herod himself, Jesus did not succumb 
to any of their temptations to perform any proof of or to exploit his identity. After he was crucified, the people watching said he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God. The soldiers coming up to him said the same thing. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. One of the criminals hanging next to him said the same. Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Through all of this, Jesus remained faithful to God. And before taking his last breath, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Luke's point is this. At every juncture, Jesus could have saved himself, and yet he didn't. He wouldn't succumb to the temptation to do so, not at the beginning of his ministry and not when he was tried, convicted, and crucified. Luke's portrayal of Jesus emphasized Jesus' spiritual, psychological, and emotional discipline. I think I agree with Luke. In remembering what Jesus endured, I too value most how Jesus conducted himself with disciplined faithfulness to God. And more than anything, I regret the lack of it on the part of every other person. I am moved when Jesus prays for his disciples that our faith may not fail in the time of trial, Given that this is Jesus' prayer for us, I can't help but be concerned about how we are training ourselves, how we are disciplining our, our faithfulness in our daily lives. So many forces are at work to train us in the opposite direction, to elicit emotions and behaviors that detract from a disciplined faithfulness to God. This past week, I attended an online conference hosted jointly by the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics and The Atlantic magazine. The conference was on the topic of disinformation and the erosion of democracy, a topic about which I sorely needed to learn. The conference was kicked off by a keynote address given by journalist Maria Ressa. Maria Ressa is co-founder of Rappler, the top digital-only news site leading the fight for press freedom in the Philippines. You may know that in 2021, she was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in recognition of her efforts to safeguard freedom of expression. As a journalist, Maria Ressa has endured constant political harassment and arrest by the Duterte government. She has been forced to post bail 10 times to stay free. In fact, just to travel to Chicago in order to speak at this conference, she had to get court approvals for seven criminal charges. Beyond this, she has been the victim of millions of attacks on the internet. Channeling this experience as data for her own research and work, Maria Ressa has studied and written about the information ecosystem in which we live. Today, she says, we are living in a behavior modification system. 
The use of artificial intelligence to surveil our emotional responses to content on the internet and social media platforms and of algorithms to amplify those things that elicit from us negative emotions such as anger, moral outrage, and hate has led to what, in 2018, an MIT study has shown that lies laced with anger and hate spread faster and further than facts. For the sake of some company's profit or some entity's agenda, disinformation and conspiracy theories are being amplified by algorithmic design to manipulate our emotions and behaviors. While Maria Ressa and the other conference presenters pointed to several constructive collective solutions to this global problem threatening societal health, she also offered some individual advice. Be aware. Think slow, not fast. In the environment we live in today, this advice to think slow and not fast to show emotional restraint rather than emotional reaction when using the internet and social media is all the more challenging and all the more important. Not only for rebuilding democracy, as was the topic of the conference, but for practicing disciplined Christian faithfulness. It is, it is the paramount social challenge of our day and we, wouldn't, and we would be naive to think that it doesn't also have consequences on the body of Christ and our witness in the world. Clearly, the church has never been immune from contributing to a mobocracy. And that possibility is only exacerbated today by the social media climate that makes up the air we breathe lest we allow our emotions to be manipulated for purposes other than God's kingdom. It is all the more imperative today that followers of Christ hold a disposition of skepticism and strengthen the edit function on our social passions. This is the kind of discriminating discipline required for the moment in which we live. Christians are fueled by a social passion for the kingdom of God. And just as Christ exemplified in his last days, we must learn to exercise our faithfulness with discipline. Amen. Amen.